Welcome to Redefining Reality, where we live at the intersection of wellness, business, and the birth of a global tribe. So relax your body-mind, open your heart, and recognize that we are the ones we've been waiting for. What is going on, my friends? Brian Hardy here, back with another episode of the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being alive and caring and desiring a better life, better health, more connection, more nature, all the good things in your life. This is what we will explore today and most days on this podcast. And today, although it may seem like a departure from the usual content, it's very much in line with the philosophy and the focus of my life and my work. Um, So many people know me as a digestive health specialist, and that is, in fact, where I focus my coaching and my clinical practice is around resolving gut health issues. And I love that, and it really, you know, it, it's the foundation of everything. And yet, today, we're going to talk about something that is more ancient and more primal and, in some ways, more foundational, um, and actually is something that, just by the very nature of doing it, you're going to be benefiting your microbiome. You're going to be benefiting your digestive health because you are exposing yourself to native bacterias and viruses and cultures and environments and low-stress environments in many cases. And what I'm talking about here is hunting. Hunting, fishing, foraging, getting out into the world and gathering or harvesting through trapping or killing, hunting, your own wild food. And this is something that's been so pivotal in my own understanding of health and humanity and culture and what it means to be a human being Uh, living in a dynamic balance and being a participant in the ecological food web, which most of us are not participants. Most of us rely on supermarkets and stores and farmers. Nothing wrong with those things, but we rely on those things to feed ourselves and to feed our families. And by doing so, we really do ourselves a disservice on many levels that we're going to explore here in this podcast. The first being that the diversity and the nutrient density is greatly reduced. As soon as you start cultivating food and eating it when it's not fresh, aka buying stuff from a store that's shipped to you from halfway across the planet, picked when it's not ripe, sprayed with God knows what, even if it's organic, it's not mean it's not being sprayed with stuff, And then sold to you in a store after being under artificial lighting and in an artificial environment for who knows how long. And the the life force, the vitality, the nutrient density of that food versus getting outside, picking some wild blueberries, shooting a squirrel, cooking some fish that you caught that day in in the river or in a lake. You know, any of those things, small game, big game, fish, foraging, weeds, so called weeds, you know, dandelions, 
uh, any of these things that are free in many cases. Of course, you need licenses to gather certain uh, fish and species and hunt certain species. But they're free, they're out there, they're wild. And in most cases, they're going to be a lot cleaner and more nutrient-dense. And that's not even to start touching on the psychological and spiritual benefits that one can derive from being connected to their food and from actually going out there and taking a life and knowing what it is to take life and honoring that life uh, so that we may live and that we may thrive just as our ancestors did for countless generations before us. And so this is something that I'm going to be moving more and more into myself. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen myself and my partner Katya posting things about the mushrooms that we're collecting or the berries we're collecting or the pine needles or whatever cool, fun, wild edibles we happen to come across. Uh, we're out there and we're doing it and we've been doing it for a couple of years now, but it's all been foraging, all been foraging, all plants and mushrooms. And so I've just done my training uh, to be able to hunt. And so looking later into this winter here is when I plan to get out there and actually be on the hunt. And I encourage you to, to do the same if you feel so inspired. You know, if this kind of thing speaks to you. And if you think that, oh, I want to eat animal products, but I don't trust the quality of what's available in the stores. And maybe you feel like you just are stressed out and you want to get away from technology and into the natural world, you know, then this is your invitation to really get out there and to start observing and studying and learning uh, far before you plan to take uh, an animal off the landscape, just to learn about that animal and its environment. And all of those things, as we know, are absolutely essential for long-term, deep, robust human health, mentally, physically, spiritually, and that's why, you know, it's so important. And that's why I want to bring this episode to you. And I want to feature my main man here in this topic, Clay Bowers, who is up in North Michigan. Nomiforager.com, N-O-M-I, forager.com is his website where he writes various blogs and has workshops and courses. And he's really just one of the most all-around awesome and well-rounded individuals uh, in this world of foraging and hunting. So that's that. And I mean, if you're a plant-based eater or you're a vegan, I would encourage you not to turn this episode off. I would encourage you to be with it and to really listen to it and to be open to the possibility that people who hunt wild animals and trap wild animals actually love those animals more than anyone who just watches them on screens and has no real connection or relationship to those animals and who isn't financially invested in protecting the habitat that supports those animals as hunters and fishers are because of the fees and the taxes that are applied to the materials you need, you know, the tools, the weapons, the ammunition, the licenses, all of that stuff goes to fund wild game preservation and habitat preservation and natural resource management programs. Without those funds, there's not a whole lot of resources to employ the workers that actually take care of those environments and keep those animals alive and well. So if you're, you know, like I said, if you're plant-based, if you're vegan, I don't, I don't not 
appreciate that. I appreciate the desire to do less harm and to choose better sources. Uh, but in my experience, the vast majority of plant-based eaters are ill-informed and uneducated and not actually getting all the nutrition that they need to thrive, not just to survive, I mean to thrive uh, and to do so for years and years and years on end. You know, anyone can be vegan for a week or two weeks or three months or six months or even a few years. Some people will get through that, but I've seen too many times people wrecking their health, uh, becoming very anxious, becoming very thin and frail and uh, ultimately withering away until they have that first egg or that first bite of a burger or a steak or a piece of fish and their body and their brain just lights up because they need that stuff. So if I'm going to have that stuff as I plan to for the next foreseeable future, I want to be able to get my hands dirty and get in the game and actually know what it's like to be out there and to take that life and to honor that life. So that's what this podcast is about. I wanted to have Clay on because he is such a wealth of knowledge. And like I said, he's very um, well-rounded. And so we talk about his favorite things to hunt. We talk about his history getting into this world. We talk about his favorite things to forage, things like stinging nettle and mulberries, which got him into this. Um, even things like maple syrup and tapping maple trees. And he inspired me to look to tap maple trees at the end of this winter. So it's something, it's, it's very easy to do. You know, these things don't have to be a massive investment of time and energy. Of course they can, but they don't have to be that. And the amount of satisfaction and nourishment that you can get from engaging in these activities can be quite, quite, quite um, substantial. So that's all I wanted to say. You know, this is uh, for people who are interested in these things. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. And to find the show notes for this episode and links to the various things that we talk about, links to Clay's work on Instagram and his website, you can go over to the blog at Brian Hardy. That's Brian with a Y, hardy.ca forward slash Clay, C L A Y. And I'll have everything linked up over there. Now, before we hop into it, just a quick message from a couple of our sponsors. These are really just brands that I love and that I use and that I recommend and that I see doing a lot of good for both myself, my friends, family, and my clients. And the first one that we're going to talk about is Buy Optimizers. Yes, Buy Optimizers. You may have heard of them with their masszymes, which is a proteolytic enzyme. As well, they have their uh, protein digesting probiotics, P3OM. And I've really been liking the masszymes, and I've really been liking actually the Capex, which is for fat and protein digestion and mitochondrial support. Really been liking that one as well as their Magnesium Breakthrough product, which has seven forms of bioavailable magnesium, far more than you're going to find in most supplements and far more absorbable because of the forms of that magnesium. So that product is also really, really amazing because it's convenient. It's in a capsule. Two capsules is a therapeutic dose for most people. And like I said, you're going to get the best absorption and bioavailability from at least in terms of capsulated magnesium, anything else that I've seen on the market. 
And so get yourself over to buyoptimizers.com. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S. Buy Optimizers. Check out their website. Check out the link in the show notes. And use the code HARDY10, H-A-R-D-Y-10, one zero. Use that code on any purchase to save an additional 10%. And depending on when you are hearing this, they might be having some pretty epic Black Friday sales. So definitely get over there, get some savings, get yourself some quality supplementation, and let me know how it works for you because it certainly is working for me. And the other company I want to send you over to check out is 7health.ca. S-E-V-E-N, health.ca. That is a beautiful company, a fresh company, a new company in the online and nutritional marketplace. But the founders, one of whom I went to nutrition school with, uh, are anything but new to this industry. And so they've gone and created some really, really fantastic high-quality formulas. Uh, A couple that I'm going to highlight here and advise that you go check out. The first is called Strong, and that's an essential amino acids formula. I had a post, really thorough post on my Instagram a little while ago. If you're not following me on Instagram, go ahead and do that at BrianHardy7. That's Brian with a Y, Hardy, H-A-R-D-Y-7 on Instagram. And uh, I lay out the best reasons, the main reasons why I use essential amino acids and why you might want to as well, and that is to fuel recovery and fuel a fasted workout or just a really intense workout because they go directly into the stomach, into circulation, and into the muscles. They fuel the muscles. They repair the muscles. They really help with muscle growth and all without needing to digest anything because they're pre-digested and all without having to take in a lot of calories because they are almost zero calories. Not that I'm worried about calories, not that you should necessarily be worried about calories, But it's just super, super easy. And if you're into fasting, which I used to be, I am not a proponent of major fasting these days. I think it's too stressful for most people's bodies. But if you are doing your intermittent fasting or fasted training, then taking a serving of essential amino acids before that can really stabilize things and really improve your recovery and stabilize blood sugar. So they're good all around. Uh, These guys also have a really, really great, more brain-focused magnesium product that's a drink powder, just like the essentials, the essential amino acids. That's a drink. It's very delicious, very tasty, sugar-free, very clean. Um, So they have a magnesium drink as well, and they also have one, I think it's called Testo, which is a male uh, testosterone product that's formulated around Tongkat Ali extract or Long Jack extract which is a very, very powerful herb that I love and that is effective for libido, for strength, for testosterone support. And so check them out. They've got really, really great stuff. Go to their website. That's 7health.ca. Use the code Brian Hardy, my name, all one word. And that's going to knock 10% off any and all orders. So if you feel like you're in the market, you need some magnesium support, you need some amino acid support, you want some testosterone support, you just want to feel like your best self, then check their stuff out, 7health.ca, and uh, use that code to save 10%. Okay, now, I've been yapping for long enough here. If you've made it through this, I really appreciate it. If you support the podcast through these links and through these codes, I really appreciate it. 
It helps this work continue and helps fuel my research and creation of future awesome content. And that I really, really value. And I know it's been a while since I released a podcast on here, and that's going to change in the coming months. I've been doing a lot of inner journeying, inner uh, searching, clarifying. Uh, we moved, which I probably already mentioned before, but we're in a whole new world here, and we're getting set up, and we are preparing for what might potentially be a bit more of a rough ride, given the whole kind of global uh, viral situation at the moment. I'm not going to go into that too much, but one more reason why it's great to not only have awesome supplements and food around to support your system, but why the topic of this podcast with Clay on acquiring and hunting fresh wild food of both fish and animal and plant and fungal nature can be the key between just getting by and really doing well. So that's what we're about. We're about thriving. We're about nature connection. We're about rebalancing our relationship to ourselves, to the planet, to each other, so that we can express what we're here to express. And that, in my opinion, is vibrant, radiant, robust health and strength. Because that's what we're created to do. That's how we're designed. We are strong by design, as my friends would say. And uh, I know that that is in me, that that is in you, and that that is why you're listening to this. Because you know that, and you feel that, and you honor that on a deep, deep level, and you want to embody that even more so, just as I do. So again, thank you for being here. Enjoy this podcast with Clay Bowers, and I'll catch you soon. Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of Redefining Reality. Today, I have my friend Clay Bowers on the line. And Clay is a very interesting and, for me, inspiring individual. Um, he's someone that I had the pleasure of meeting uh, in 2019 in the summer at the Great Lakes Foragers Gathering, which for me, till this day, is one of the very best gatherings I've ever been to. Um, in terms of the people, in terms of what we were learning, in terms of the diversity, and of course, the wild food focus. Um, it was really an amazing eye-opening experience. And Clay and your girlfriend were both, you know, just, just there and just sharing and beating themselves. And um, it was so easy to connect. And it was so easy to be inspired because myself and my partner were still and still are, I would say, you know, relatively novice and new to a lot of the world of wild foraging uh, for plants. And I'm just starting to dip my toe into the world of hunting, which I'm really excited about. I'm excited to talk to you about. Um, but so it was just really cool to see these people that were so, from my perspective, uh, grounded and rooted in this way of life and this way of seeing the world. So Clay, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, no problem, man. My pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so I really want to start at your start in getting into the world of uh, foraging and, you know, looking for wild plants. And what was it that brought you into that space? Or was there like a particular moment or story where you sort of crossed the threshold um, and then sort of became, you know, someone interested in these things? Or please, you know, tell, tell that story for us. Okay, so I guess I should start like 
when I was a real little kid, I used to run around in the woods behind my house back when it was still legal for kids to run around unattended by adults. <laughs> and yep. I, I used to play with the plants, but there was one plant in particular that was kind of fascinating to me above all other plants, and that was the stinging nettle plant. And I used to purposely grab the stinging nettle and I would sting myself with it. And then I'd run around to other plants and kind of rub them on myself and see if they made it feel any better. Now, <laughs> to, today, I think that it was probably a little bit like crazy, but it still got me interested in plants. And then I kind of did the thing that a lot of kids do, and I just sort of got out of it, got into other stuff, you know, um, sports girls, all that stuff. And I forgot about plants for a really long time until I was in my early 20s, 21, 22. And I started to have this kind of peripheral, like, interest in plants. Um, but the basic first one, and I just uh, relayed this story a couple weeks ago on another podcast, was I got handed a pamphlet at a punk show. And mm. It was a pamphlet that had two plants on it. And at that time, I lived in the Metro Detroit area. And Metro Detroit is chock full of mulberry trees. And one of those plants on that pamphlet was a mulberry tree. And it said, you can pick these mulberries, and they're everywhere, and they're abundant. And I thought, well, this is really fascinating. So that whole summer, I probably ate more mulberries than... I've ever eaten since and now I'm kind of not that much of a fan of mulberries here about 15 years later <laughs> <laughs> but that was the that was what kick-started me off on this path was like somebody handing me a pamphlet at a punk show yeah amazing and you just took it and you ran with it and it's 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 for me you know I think the biggest semi uh, breakthrough moment that had me completely reorient myself to see nature and the world as full of food and medicine um, was when I was studying holistic nutrition and we went on a herb walk as part of our herbal medicine course. And the amount of plants that were in this park, that was a park I had been to before. I was kind of familiar with the park, but my teacher with, you know, trained eyes and experience was able to pull plant after plant after plant and feed it to us and teach us about it. And pretty much ever since then, I've been, you know, open and continuing to, you know, try and learn and develop and be around people that are more experienced so I can keep soaking that knowledge in and, and, and integrating it and transmitting it forward and spreading this culture. Um, because few things I think are as important as humans being connected to healthy food and the healthiest food is wild food. Um, yeah. So I, I definitely know what that's like, that transition. And similarly, I lived in Toronto for a couple of years. And uh, that's probably the – mulberries were probably the only thing that I foraged while living in the city just because <laughs> they're so easy to find. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I love that moment. And I'm sure you've probably had this moment. And you have a couple of kiddos. So you probably mm -hmm. you know get to see experiences more often. But I would, I would find these places, whether it's a feral apple tree or a mulberry tree or whatever, a dandelion greens, whatever it is that you might find and want to snack on. And then you see kids, kids will see you doing what you're doing and they become mind blown and so interested 
and uh, so curious, you know, and then, and then usually they have their parents saying, oh, no, that's silly or don't do that or, you know, they're dirty, don't eat that, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. all nonsense, all utter nonsense, um, especially in the wake of what's going on globally and the, the compromised immune systems of so many people because yes. of this over-sterilization. Um, but just to say that I, too, know what it's like to indulge on the urban mulberry. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it is a great introductory plant. And also one of those grew feral in my parents' backyard growing up. Um, ah. And for the first, like, three times that I went outside and cut it down because it was growing too much, uh, we didn't eat anything off of it. And then eventually I realized, oh, these are actually mulberries. And it became more of a resource. Oh yeah, they they like to grow back no matter what. Yep, they're mm -hmm. a very hardy tree. It's insane. Yeah. It's insane. But I, I wanted to mention something you said a second ago. You were talking about kids and that um, their interest, and that mm -hmm. that is spot on. And and it is often the parents that are the ones that are saying, you know, oh, don't do that. I have. Uh, I'll I'll tell you like an experience that we have almost every single summer. Mm -hmm. Me, me and Madeline my girlfriend, we pick a lot of berries, like a tremendous amount of berries. This year, I think we're up to 125 pounds already of berries. Whoa. And um, we usually, I live here in Traverse City, Michigan, and we pick, uh, they're not wild, but there'll be service berry bushes that are planted everywhere. Mm. And they're, they're planted as landscaping plants for the birds. But what ends up happening is uh, people like me that know that they're edible for humans we go out in droves and pick them. And inevitably, you know, I live in a very touristy town. We'll be picking and it's, you know, usually the beginning of July that they start to ripen and all kinds of tourists are walking by us and we're sitting there with our berry baskets picking. And then a kid comes up and says, I want to eat these. And then the parent comes by and this has actually happened. I'm not even kidding you. While we are shoveling our faces with these berries, the parent says, those berries are poisonous <laughs> as if we're sitting there just like purposely like poisoning ourselves in full view of the public. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it, rep it just illustrates how disconnected people are from nature yeah. and from food um, to the point that you just have to laugh. And that's been yeah. my strategy for a lot of what's going on. And this is, yep. you know, this is uh, September 2020 for our recording time. For those of you listening in the future, you'll know, you know, the kind of season and climate that we're in globally. Um, yeah. And it's, it's just, you have to laugh because otherwise you'll go insane with the craziness. Um, and that's another piece about why, you know, this kind of practice and pursuit, I think, is so appealing to folks is because getting out there and just, you know, unplugging and immersing your hands and your feet in the trees and the bushes and the dirt uh, is amazing for the mind and amazing for clearing the mind and relieving stress, right? Mitigating stress. Um, so yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I think we're going to see it kind of like organic food, you know, organic food is like the hip cool thing now and it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty abundant. Um, and I, I mean, I'm sure it'll be for a small subsection of the population who's, who's, you know, willing to go out and learn these things, but you know, wild will become like the new organic. It'll be like, you know, the, the cool cutting edge thing that health people are into. 
because um, I really, I really hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I don't, I don't expect it to be on a massive scale, um, but I think it could expand to, you know, multiple multiples of what it currently is, is, is at least what I'm, you know, seeing or feeling into for the future, at least what I want to, you know, surround myself with those kinds of people and those kinds of environments where people are, you know, tending the wild and, and, you know, gardening and doing those things too, but creating that synergy, right. So that we can have amazing, nutritious, delicious food uh, for, you know, just the investment of time and energy really. Um, yeah. But I want to dig into a couple things that uh, as I was going through your Instagram and I think also as we were chatting at the gathering um, that you seem to do quite a bit of small game hunting and trapping. Um, yeah. And you had a great post about beavers and, and beaver trapping and why you love beavers so much. And I'd love for you to explain that to folks and explain your relationship to the beaver and how you uh, utilize it and harvest it and interface with it. Because I mean, I'm from Canada and to tell people, if I tell someone that I want to go like trap and eat a beaver, they're probably going to think I'm insane. They're like, what's wrong with you? That's like our national animal. How could you do that? You know? <laughs> um, and I might've been one of those people about 15 years ago. Um, but now I'm seeing that, oh no, this is actually, I mean, it's an amazing animal, first of all. And apparently there's some of the best eating around. So I'd love to hear about your experience with that. When did you start trapping beavers? How did you start trapping beavers? What did you, what was that journey like? Okay. So I guess I got to start from the get go. What you just said, like 15 years ago, you probably would have said that. And I, I actually was having a conversation about beaver trapping earlier today. And I would, I actually said that the past me would have never believed that I would have been a beaver trapper. And, um, cause I'm an adult onset hunter. That's like a term that's been coined for people like me who didn't grow up hunting, but then became hunters later on in life. Mm -hmm. So for me, I got interested in, in hunting as just a general, like offshoot of foraging in, in general and wanting to feed myself from the land. And I got kind of sickened by the CAFO farming that is all around us. And the disgusting, mm -hmm. just like raising animals and filthy pens, you know, where they're, I, I mean, we all know what I'm, ex what I'm explaining basically. So I got into hunting and then I, I, I honestly, I can't tell you like what inspired me to try, but I just one year just decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going to give this a, a go, a go. And so my first year trapping was, I think, five or six years ago, maybe. And I, I went out and I found a spot. I, I guess I should back up here really quick. A lot of people believe that the beaver is very underpopulated. And I'm sure by historic, uh, historic measures, it is very underpopulated. But it is so overpopulated um, by today's standards that we have the ability to trap as many as we want. Now that's, that's not what I do. I only take enough for eating and a few furs a year. That's it, you know? Mm. Um, and, and I'll never, I want to stress this. I will never uh, trap 
all of any beaver population out of any spot. So I'll always leave beavers behind because I think that's very important. They are my favorite animal. I love them. I feel like a connection to beavers. Like I, like some people feel to other animals, that's my connection to the beaver. Like I, I love it. And I, that is a very weird thing for some people to understand. How could you love something and eat something? Well, I'll just relay this. The Plains Indians often said that they were descended from the bison that they hunted. So uh, they obviously had a great relationship with the bison. They loved the bison, but they ate them anyway. And uh, so that's my feelings. I, I love beavers. I love what they do to the landscape. They transform it in a way that no other animal besides humans can do. And they have the power to create like uh, beneficial destruction. <laughs> mm. So that beneficial destruction is good for almost every other living creature besides the trees that they cut down. <laughs> mm. So, and even in the long run, I would say that that is good for the trees, but Anyway, so I got into beaver trapping because I just wanted to do one more pursuit of a wild animal, and mm -hmm. it turned out to be one of the my best loves to do in my entire life and also introduced me to an animal that I've spent years now studying. So it's pretty cool. Wow. Wow. And as you were speaking, I was seeing how, um, you know, before we started recording here, you're talking about some of the work you're doing today. Uh, carpentry type stuff like building stuff yeah and uh, you know I wonder if that's even an, an, another piece of your connection because you are a builder right um, <clears throat> yeah and you think in those terms of okay cutting this and build, putting that there um, and that's exactly what beavers seem to do you know they're like these engineers out there that are taking down and moving massive amounts of material uh, to transform the landscape and to, to yeah. damn things up which is so yeah. wild. It's so wild to think about. Um, and I actually had the, the uh, firsthand experience of like what that looks like in its early-ish early -ish stages. Um, myself and my partner were um, looking at a piece of land not too far from here uh, that was for sale. And I think it's still for sale, but it, it was used as a hunt camp and just sort of a camping space. Um, and they said that they had all kind of animals coming through there. Um, but that it was flooding because of the beavers downstream, which had dammed up the water. And so it's starting to back up. And whereas, the, you know, they had pictures in the, on the listing online of this, of this place. And you see, okay, it looks like dry fields and so forth. And then we're there and we're walking through marsh essentially. <laughs> and so it's just crazy to see how quickly these things can take effect and how dramatic the effects can be. Um, and, you know, of course, if, if you're a human and you don't want a marsh, then you're going to be like, oh, stupid beavers. Um, but if you can learn to work with that and learn to, you know, honor the, the effectiveness that they have for keeping water on a landscape, which if people are into like permaculture uh, or even types of agriculture, you know, preserving and collecting water is like, you know, number one priority many times. Um, yeah. And so here's this animal that does that naturally and does it better than we probably ever could. Um, so it's, it's, it's just amazing. The more we learn about these things and study these creatures and, and see just what a gift they are to the rest of life. Um, so I think, yeah, that comes through clearly in the way that you speak of it. Um, 
I just want to say one other thing is that when people think that, you know, the whole, like, how could you kill and eat something that you love? Um, those things that give us life, you know, those are like the most sacred things and getting back to, you know, the Plains Indians, of course, you know, they depended on the, the bison and if, you know, they descended and depended. And I think that's yep. just part of life, you know, is that we descend and depend on the things that keep us alive. And by honoring those things and, you know, uh, stewarding those things, we create healthy culture over generations. Um, you know, something that the current culture is totally, you know, unplugged from. Um, and again, which is why I'm so adamant about learning this stuff and being part of this culture that is piecing things together in a more sustainable way. Um, and I'm curious, have you ever done anything I've heard? And I think a lot of people might have heard that the, I'm forgetting the name of the gland, the gland that the beavers have that was prized. Oh, the castor gland. The castor gland. Have you ever, is it true? Does Is there medicinal, you know, benefit or power locked up in that thing? Did you use <laughs> that in any way? Like what's, what's going on there? Or is that like you feed it back to the wildlife? You know, what's the deal? The only thing that we do use those for is um, most trappers save them and dry them out so that you can um, basically use them as a scent to make beaver other beavers curious about about your doings. Okay. So, so those have those are scent markers, right? So if you take those from one area and kind of like mark a new area with that then all the beavers are going to get pretty angry about a, a new beaver coming in. And that's a way that people use to, it's like a lure essentially. Mm. Um, the, but here it's, it's kind of weird, but I'll say it. I kind of think the smell is pretty good. And, and honestly, like the, um, the one of the original uses of castor gland was in Cologne. Mm. Uh, and, and the scent is so potent that a couple weeks ago, me, my son, and my daughter, my middle daughter, were all out fishing in a canoe in this isolated pond, not many people. Mm-hmm. And my son's been out with me trapping a bunch of times, so he already knows like what the smell smells like. And we're out there fishing, and then all of a sudden, we just we're coming around this bend, and we catch this waft of beaver caster, and we're just like, whoa! And you can smell it from a hundred yards away. And then we finally found the scent post, you know, it's a little mound of dirt on the side of the lake. And, uh, (laughs) it's, it's so potent though. You can, you can really smell it from really far away. Wow. Yeah. And it it makes sense. Uh, You know, all these things, perfumes, colognes, all these crazy extracts that get turned into consumer products. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, so often at the, the, the origin of that, is like something from horse urine or beaver gland or (laughs) whatever it is. It's so bizarre and people spray it on themselves and have no idea. Um, I know. Which is just, it's just funny to think about, you know, if it was me, I'd probably go for more of like a, like a pine resin kind of smell um, for a personal cologne, maybe some cedar. Um, But you know, whatever floats your boat, if your lady's into beaver caster, then I guess, you know, yeah, that, that works too. Oh no, she, my lady is not into beaver caster. She thinks it smells terrible. <laughs> no, yes, no, I wasn't trying to say that Madeline was, yeah, but that, yeah, you know, yeah. hypothetically, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess they mix it and dilute it and do all that kind of crazy chemistry. Yeah. Um, 
But okay, so we got the beaver. And what, what's the season for beaver? Is that over the winter? Is that a spring? Is there a, a, is there a season or is there open? or? In, in Michigan, the season is, uh, for us, November to April. So it's a very long season. Okay, and over the winter. Yep, over the winter. And obviously, like for me, we really slow down in those winter months when the ice is real thick. Mm-hmm. just because to to trap beaver under ice is like a whole different beast so i i basically don't do any trapping midwinter really mm. you know i mean unless um, unless it's like something like last winter i found a i found a spot that was very thin ice so beautiful uh, yeah that's i mean that's the way it is and then in terms of the meat describe the meat for folks right because i, I gotta so, hear it's one of the most delicious meats yeah, so beaver meat, you know, that's another like a misconception. It's, you know, oh, it's this this disgusting thing, and actually, most trappers throw it away. Whoa. So, I know, and that's that's to me like a complete crime, right? You know, when when we trap a beaver in, in this house, we're not only using the liver and the heart, um, and then the fur, but all of the meat goes in. So anything that's like kind of too tough we just grind and make beaver burger and uh and it tastes like beef it just tastes like uh, in the words of steven ranella the the host of the meat eater podcast mm-hmm. it tastes like uh perfumey beef <laughs> okay and uh most people love it when they have it okay well i'm excited i'm excited i gotta learn what the deal is up here, whether we're even able to trap them, um, and what in Canada like. you are, you you are, are you you are not, but uh, you have to have a registered trap line. I actually have some Canadian buddies who uh, take part in that process. Amazing, yeah, amazing. That's something for me to, down the road. Down the road, I'll look to that. Um, I'm starting slow. Starting slow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so beaver, fascinating, fascinating animal, fascinating. Uh, process and uh, yeah, delicious meat. Who would have thought? Not me, but apparently that's the <laughs> thing. Yeah. In terms of other small game, what is your what? What's your favorite thing? And not not just small game, but what's your favorite thing to go out there and get uh, because of like the process or what you can do with what you get from it, the preparation, a recipe. Like, what's one of your favorite things that just lights you up? Are we talking of all pursuits, like hunting and foraging, or just hunting? Just hunting right now. Just hunting. Uh, my favorite hunting is squirrel hunting. So, uh, and I know that I, I that immediately elicits like laughs, probably in a lot of portions of the population, because everybody imagines that a squirrel is just like the easiest thing to hunt, because everybody only interacts with city squirrels mostly. But once you get out into a wild landscape, those animals are really turned on and they are not um, easy to hunt. You know, Mm. they, you have like two animals, basically like squirrels and muskrats are the most hunted animals on the landscape. So you're talking aerial predation and then ground predation as well. So everything is trying to eat them and they are very, very, very good at detecting that as a result. It makes so, a lot of sense. 
makes yeah. a lot of sense. And then in terms of how much how much meat do you get off from the average squirrel, is that you know like a few ounces or or more substantial or what does that what does that break down to? I have not weighed uh, the meat on a squirrel, but it's not much. So my limit per day here in Michigan is five squirrels per day. And actually today is the opener of squirrel season. <laughs> okay. Um, and unluckily for me, I got too busy to get to actually go out, but I typically wait until it gets a little colder anyway. Um, and is that because the foliage has died down, died back, or is that because they're more easy to spot or what's the, what's the rationale there? Uh, the rationale for me is that the, I, I can't, I, I've, I've never like had this happen, but they tend to have a little bit more fleas on them in the warmer months. And mm. so if you shoot a squirrel and then you got to carry them around with you for a while, say you're, cause I'll go out and hunt for like three hours at a time, three or mm -hmm. four hours. Mm -hmm. And I just don't want to have fleas crawling all over me. So good cold weather makes the fleas kind of, really die down you know okay and i don't i don't hide i'm not like afraid of the cold weather I, I i like the cold so it's a fun thing to me to like be out there on january 1st or something when nobody else is out and just hunting squirrels by myself <laughs> yeah that yeah. sounds like heaven yeah i'm getting all this is getting me really excited for winter more so than ever because, I mean, I enjoy winter, and unlike you, I enjoy the cold. But there's only so many times I can go for a hike or, you know, go and do some sort of snow sports or go ice skating or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, so this is going to open things up in a whole new way. And, and this is, you know, part of the message that I really want people to pick up. And for those of you that are listening, potentially people who might dread winter, um, to, to really allow yourself to see things with a new lens and to see that there's a whole other world out there that is so interesting and so fascinating and so uh, nourishing to not just your body because you can fill your stomach with some, with some wild meat, which is amazing, but to you know a connection to something much bigger than any of us, um, which I think for myself, you know, if I, if I don't have that, if I'm not making that time and getting out there alone, unplugged, I just, you know, you know, uh, sort of pun intended, I can get a little squirrely. I can, <laughs> get, I can get a little, you know, high strung and stressed out and, uh, just disconnected from, you know, the, the, the important things in life. So, um, I love that. I love that people like you are out there and, and teaching these things and spreading this kind of knowledge as a way to, to, to bridge back to those practices. Yeah. Um, well, it, and I wanted to mention too, for some of the listeners that might not be interested in hunting, just even if you live in a Northern climate and you don't like to hunt, there's stuff that you can do in the winter regardless. And I would encourage everybody to not hide inside all winter because it actually makes winter longer and worse. Mm. So, my experience is it takes, you know, I, I think the science says roughly 10 days of kind of being sort of shivery for your mitochondria to sort of ramp up and get you used to the weather outside. So I spend every, almost every day doing some sort of outside activity all year. Mm -hmm. And um, because of that, 
you know, I can be outside hunting squirrels for a couple hours in mid January and it's totally fine for me. I don't, I don't feel like I'm freezing or I'm going to die. I just walk around and oftentimes don't even wear gloves, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so it's like, it's not superhuman ability. It's just like getting yourself accustomed to it. And it's a beautiful time of year. It's quiet. The snow dampens sound. So it's really eerily quiet. And, um, there's, I mean, up by you, I'm sure you have birch trees. There's chaga to be found in the winter. Yep. And if somebody wants to interact with animals and they don't want to hunt, they can always go out and track them. The snow is the perfect time to go track animals. And that's a really fun activity. Mm. And just sort of learning on, you know, their, their pathways and what they're getting up to. Yeah, exactly. And if you're lucky, you'll see them, you know, get to observe them in the flesh up close and personal. Um, I love that. I love that. And I wonder, do you practice? Because I know, you know, people, friends of ours in this kind of space like to oftentimes, you know, go outside and be shirtless or wearing shorts or, you know, barefoot in the snow. Do you practice those kinds of things too, just for fun? Or are you more just like a regular, you know, clothe up and, and do your thing? Oh yeah. I mean, I definitely have my weirdo side. (laughs) I've got, got I have a practice of, I live five minutes from Grand Traverse Bay. And, and, and so all winter I'll swim at least once a month. And, and and by swim, I I only mean like maybe stay in for maybe a minute. Yeah. Um, But I, and then on my birthday, which is January 29th, I have a I have a birthday tradition of going for a swim too. So that's a really cold time of year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I go for a swim and then I'll walk around barefoot afterwards in the snow and just sort of like stand out there. And then, you know, I I am I am really into the whole Wim Hof breathing and all that stuff, so um so yeah, I, I you know, it's for me it it is uh foraging and, and hunting and, and that's all like kind of what people know me by but i i do have this like you know weirdo cold thing as well like i've been cold showering for about 15 years mm. well and what's your ancestry i mean you must have like some viking or something in you um at least from northern climates i'm sure you know for a long time yeah i um my last name Bowers is a misspelled version for farmers in German. So, oh wow, yeah. So I have, I, I definitely have like some German, but I, other than that, I've never done the whole twenty-three and me thing. So, so it's a beautiful mystery. Yep, could, could be anything. Could have some Neanderthal in there. Uh, I'm sure I do. <laughs> <laughs> for my, I think, I think, what is it like? Uh, if you're of European ancestry, then most of us have 4% or something DNA from yeah, something like that. I don't know what the exact stat is, but it's yeah. definitely something like that. Yeah. Um, and then similar question, similar question in terms of a uh, favorite thing to go out, but now on the foraging side, and this can be plant, this can be mushroom. Uh, walk us through that, that picture and maybe, you know, tell a story of a, a particularly vivid or, or, or successful experience you had going out for that thing. Okay, so I just got back from harvesting wild rice, which is my favorite foraging activity. And I spent a week out in Minnesota and it was it was amazing. And I actually just wrote a blog about 
how horrendously difficult and hard harvesting wild rice can be, mm. but simultaneously why I love it so much. So I, it, it's really hard to explain, but it's just, it's beautiful. I love being in a boat, you know, and that, that goes back to the beaver trapping too. You know, you're going out in a canoe and um, being on the water is just so peaceful for me. And so getting out in the morning, you and a racing partner, and you go out into these lakes that look like fields. They're so thick with rice. Mm. and uh just spending the day harvesting and then um you know depending on your relationship with your racing partner i mean you can have very deep philosophical conversations like for hours on end you know and then uh intersperse that with moments of silence while you're just sitting there thinking it's it's beautiful you know eagles and blue herons soaring overhead and um you come across muskrat dens and beaver lodges and it, it's beautiful and not to mention the fact that once you're done harvesting all this rice then you get the payoff of like you know a year's supply i mean for me i harvest enough every year so that i can eat wild rice until the following year and what does that work out to roughly in terms of like pounds or kilograms do you know uh i know pounds um kilograms would probably be uh I'm I'm working on my metric, so uh, <laughs> I I, li I like the metric system better, but I'm still I'm still learning it. So yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we we actually weigh all of our berries in grams. So um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, as as pounds, we harvest for our family like around a hundred pounds a year. And that's all done in that one week time, one week period. <laughs> yep. Oh wow. Yeah. So. That's uh, that's pretty, pretty amazing time of year for me. You know, it's it also simultaneously like we spend our summer months doing a lot of foraging. So it's like I, I sometimes wonder if if I like wild rice so much because it's like a, it, it reminds me of the slowing down of the season. So like we're very very busy all summer, and it's like uh just a, a race to get as many berries as possible and then wild rice season comes and then all of a sudden you can just feel this the shift in the the temperament of the world like everything slows down you know mm. and i and it's just it's, it feels so nice i can i can definitely understand the shifting of the seasons uh i haven't been able to get out and go after wild rice yet um, and just for people listening, how many years into harvesting um, are you currently? Uh, this is my eighth year harvesting rice. So I've been harvesting wild rice since 2012. Okay. And then just so for people that are maybe looking at getting out to try this, how many pounds do you think you got in your first year? Was it the same or was it just like a, a, a meager sort of, you know, newbie harvest? <laughs> my first year harvesting rice was a newbie harvest for sure. I probably got 10 pounds. <laughs> okay. of, uh, and, and, and when I said that I harvest a hundred pounds for my family, that's, um, that's just what I harvest for my family. I also sell some wild rice to local restaurants in the area here. And that is mostly to offset the cost of what it takes for me to travel, to go harvest wild rice. Mm. So this year I will have probably harvested somewhere around 160 pounds, something like that. 
Yep. Yep. So you got a little extra to share. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I, 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 I give some to friends and I, I trade some to some people and things like that. Um, but wild rice, uh, when I, yeah, when I first began, um, I had none of the skills that I have today. I couldn't identify what good rice stands looked like. So I kind of just went through any, any old wild rice plants that I saw, not knowing whether or not they had seeds on the heads, Mm. you know, so there's a, there's a whole knowledge base that it takes to get good at harvesting wild rice. I can imagine. I can imagine. I mean, having seen pieces of the process, um, and and heard it described in its full length. You know, it's quite an involved process. It's not just about knocking the rice into the boat, but then you have to take it and process it and parch it. And you know, there's a whole slew of steps. You know, that come yeah. from getting the grain to having a grain that you can store and cook with. Um, which is just yeah. you know, important for people to realize how much goes into this. And also, because you know, like myself my relationship with wild rice up to this point has just been buying it from other people that forage it. Um, and if, if people have never tasted true wild rice, not the cultivated stuff in the grocery store, but the real wild stuff, I mean, it's a whole different category of grain. Um, and so to appreciate what goes into that is so key. Uh, and to recognize that what you're getting when you're paying whatever it is at the market. I don't remember what we pay for like, like on, a, on a pound basis, but it's not all that much considering the amount of work that goes into this type of thing. Um, so it's, uh, it's like one of those, when I'm looking at like food th- investments and like where the real value lies, it definitely is up there for me. You know, that and maple syrup are two things that are you know, staples and things that we love and things that we don't yet have the ability to produce and to gather on our own. Yeah. And so we're happy. We're so happy to, you know, to invest and support the people that can do those things uh, because they're providing such a valuable service and such a delicious, you know, treat really. Um, So where you live, you don't have uh, maples to tap. Well, Mm, currently i mean not we don't have land with maples like i don't have any any land of our own that has maples on it there's maples around that we could probably tap and i don't imagine anyone would would bother us um but it's not it's not a bridge that i've crossed yet actually it's funny because growing up when we'd go to visit my mom's uh parents and or my mom's uncle they all lived nearby each other uh my mom's uncle was a maple syrup producer and so ah. we'd go around and drink from the buckets uh, <laughs> and taste the sap. And then he'd always have, you know, that year's batch to hand us in mason jars. This like thick, dark, black deliciousness. Um, mm-hmm. and using that on pancakes and, and things like that. So it, it, it got into me at a young age, but I have yet to come full circle and to, uh, to initiate the process. But I definitely want to do so. Maybe next spring, that would be my intention is to find some trees, even just a couple, just to get, you know, uh, get a handle on the process yeah that's a great way to get started i mean when i first started tapping maple trees every year i lived in a city and i actually just went to some of my neighbors and knocked on the door and said hey can i put some taps in your maple trees (laughs) (laughs) i think i did like four trees my first year okay so not that much you know totally manageable 
Yeah, and that's the key. That's the key, I think, with all this is to not get overwhelmed with thinking that we have to do all of the things um, Mm -hmm. and to really just start small and make it digestible. Which is the exact advice I give people, you know, if I'm, if I'm working with someone in, in, you know, nutrition and lifestyle coaching, it's the exact advice I give them um, is to start small and make it digestible and, you know, make it sustainable, whatever it is you're going to do um, and enjoyable. So you want to keep doing it. So yeah, exactly. I, love, I love that idea of keeping it simpler and, you know, just starting with what you got. Uh, yeah. Like, um, you you totally echoed exactly what I tell people when they get started foraging. If if they go gung ho right from the get go, and they try to do 100% of things, they're gonna burn out really fast, and they're gonna no longer be interested in it. Mm. Whereas if they just you just take your time and slowly let the obsession build, <laughs> you'll you'll get much farther. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And. For your blog that you mentioned there, and I definitely want to, uh, in, a, in a little bit here, get all your details so people can keep following along your journey and your work and your, your writing. Um, but what other things do you tend to write about? What do you enjoy writing about? Or what are you excited to be writing about next? I know you just got back from this, uh, this wild rice harvest, but, but you know, what's, what's maybe one thing in, uh, coming up in the winter or, or the spring? And one thing that you've you know, written about in the past that you think is a really great piece to send people to that, that want to keep diving deeper. Well, um, in regards to what's coming for the future, my, my website has been predominantly based in foraging. And so I've written about plants. I've written about the subject of invasive species. I've written about many many subjects in regards to foraging. What's coming next is I'm going to devote some time over the winter to really start writing more about hunting and fishing and, but not in like a manual sort of way, more in like a, what it's like for me and the feelings that come up within me when I go out and I hunt and I fish and how it, makes me feel more connected to the landscape and just that sort of thing. And, and then I also do want to delve a little bit into this, another subject that's of deep interest to me and that's natural navigation. I think that's some fascinating stuff. So. And that's something that you actually teach workshops on, right? Is, is natural navigation. I do, but I don't have a big turnout yet. <laughs> so um, I'm still kind of trying to figure out that whole thing. So like my foraging classes uh, tend to sell out. You know, I can have a full class, you know, almost every class that I teach. Um, and I guess that comes from me. I'm, I've been teaching classes now for 10 years. So mm. uh, natural navigation, I just started last year. And I mostly got into that because like, I, I really just wanted to start doing something that wasn't just the same old, same old, you know, I wanted to delve into something that's a little bit more niche. And uh, I guess it was so niche that not many people want to learn about it. <laughs> <laughs> yet, yet you're ahead of the curve. You're ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, that's wild though. It's wild. And it's, it's something that, I mean, 
where do you go to even learn those things? Like, did you have find a teacher or do you just rely on, on books and sort of, you know, old tried and true methods for figuring this stuff out? Uh, most, most of my knowledge of natural navigation has come from reading and just sort of exploring things on my own and looking around and noticing things, you know, uh, I mean, the way the wind blows can shape trees, you know? So like you can start to see like patterns out there that sort of like go, Oh, well that's West because that tree looks that way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, just like growing up, we had gardens and sunflowers are, they follow the sun, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, so like before they're fully ripe, they're turning and following the sun. And I always thought that was pretty fascinating. I mean, even on a cloudy day, you can tell which direction is which if you see sunflowers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that, all, all that stuff is, to me is like, I, like I said, it's, it's very niche, but, but it's very fascinating to me. Like that, that there are these clues out there in nature that, you can use to identify which direction you're facing and they have nothing to do with a compass. Wow. Yeah. It's yeah. got me thinking about, cause I think a lot of people would think, Oh, natural navigation. Like, are you looking at the stars or, you know, what, like, what are you doing? Are you doing astrological, you know, alignments in the sky? That seems really, you know, hard to grasp. I think for most people, um, yeah. but getting it really on the ground and just as you're talking about that, it's got me thinking about, okay, if someone, has those skills, then you can interpret and get so much more information and even information about the history of a place just from the way things are presenting. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I imagine that's got to be super valuable when you're doing things like hunting and trapping and looking for specific species that you know grow in specific areas or in specific uh, sort of microclimates. Like tying that all together seems like you know, at least the direction that obviously you're going, but the direction that uh, more and more people will tend to go once they realize how these things can sort of co-mingle and, and benefit whatever maybe their other pursuits are um, that they don't, they don't realize that they want to learn it, but yeah. once, once they start learning it, they'll see the connections type of thing. Yeah. Not, I'm starting to think like, think like a marketer, but yeah, uh, which is not a bad no, thing. It it's absolutely fascinating, and and the whole world like all these things start to click together once you do the foraging, and then the hunting comes in, and then the natural navigation, and all those things like click together, and they kind of like you know make each one get better as a result. So yeah, it's it it's it's really a package, and and I love it. Definitely, definitely. Well, I wanna I wanna shift gears slightly and then wrap up and I'm a little bit remiss. I'm going to have to have you on again to talk more in depth about this particular aspect of things. But when you were talking about hunting, fishing, foraging, you know, even building carpentry, these are all very typical manly pursuits and skills, you know, the guy from the 1950s and probably earlier uh, was into these things in many cases. And I Mm -hmm. wonder what this does for you in a world that has become so, like uh, degendered in a sense um, what these things do for you with your own sense of, of masculinity and how they, you know, feed that and how they 
uh, allow you to really practice those beautiful life supportive skills um, that men have typically done and just sort of your relationship to those things? Um, I will tell you about the first time. Well, actually I should say the only time, cause I've only ever hunted one deer. Um, and that was a couple years ago. And I felt such a rush of masculine energy after <laughs> that it was almost unbelievable. Um, I really, I, I don't know even how to describe it. And when I say that, I'm sure some people are going to get weird images in their head, but um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, it's not like what they're thinking or, or whatever, or whatever that brings up in people's head. But it's like, I felt like, just so manly you know and and it's like in this weird way that like a, a similarly last year I, I i did some car work and i'm not a car person and mm. I, I did some car stuff on my car and like that night like i had this like weird sense of like masculine pride you know like oh my god i did car work <laughs> and <laughs> and uh i um that's hunting and and trapping all that really does like bring that out in men i really do believe that it does and, and or actually i should say i don't believe that i it does i know that it does they say that if, after a successful hunt it actually increases males testosterone levels so i can only assume that that is a an evolutionary advantage you know like you're going to get pumped up with this thing that's going to make you a better hunter in the end you know yeah and, and to have that reciprocal sort of positive feedback um, yeah. because the successful hunt meant life, you know, it meant you could provide, I mean, you could feed your, your lady and your kids and your neighbors or your family members. Um, it's so, so, so deeply wired into us. Um, exactly. And, um, and I guess I, I forgot to say, you know, we do live in a society that's, rapidly attempting to make us all like experience this sameness and um i am all about people having equal rights all the way like i i, I love and i'll support that until the day i die but men and women are definitely different beings you know and uh it, it even if even if uh I had no need for money or providing or anything. I would still do these things and, and work every day just to get the sense of satisfaction that I get from doing so. So if that answers your question at all, like hunting does definitely like just providing for my family, like does definitely do something to make me feel more masculine and in a world that wants to tell us not to feel masculine. Yes. Yes. No, I mean, I love hearing that. And it's honestly a big piece of what's drawing me further into this world is as I do more work with men and understand the challenges men are facing in terms of the, you know, the onslaught of stress and hormonal imbalances and all this stuff. It's like, okay, how do we continue to connect to the most primal, the most nourishing, the most enlivening aspects of what it means to be alive? Um, and continue that you know tradition because if we lose this, if we lose all connection with hunting and gathering and all these things, I mean that's not a that's not a, a world that I want to live in. 
that sort of future dystopian technocratic, you know, control grid. Um, I know, and I know, you know, you're of the same, the same feeling there. Um, so it's not, not only that, but also the other side of, you know, being able to use these things as rites of passage for young men, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of initiatory rituals and experiences to help them cross that threshold and recognize the significance of, you know, taking a life and the responsibility that comes with that and the respect that needs to be present with that. And, you know, I can't imagine lessons, life lessons that will, that will sink in deeper and be more profound than these kinds of things. Um, and it makes me, you know, just wish that growing up that I had that, you know, that I had those mentors and I had those experiences uh, that, you know, all humans pretty much besides modern humans had um, and it's what kept them, you know, healthy and, and sane and connected. Um, so I, again, I love, I love that you're doing that and you're obviously, you know, role modeling this to your own children just by the very nature of it's who you are and it's what you do. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, the, the beneficial impact that is going to be passed on from that, I don't think can be understated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I took, I, I actually, in, in regards to that, my my son like i said he comes out with me um pretty regularly i i also take my daughter as well but admittedly she has less desire to do so and uh i don't I, it's not like i'm pushing that on her it's just her her desire is the person that she is she's just less inclined towards hunting um she loves fishing you know she caught a fish a couple of weeks ago um but my son he's definitely the little hunter of the family. You know, he wants to go out every chance he can get. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And it makes total sense. You know, it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. So now one second, I'm just realizing that my charger is downstairs and my battery is going to die in a second. So I'm going to run mm-hmm. downstairs and grab it and plug in and then we'll wrap this thing up. Sounds good. You're going to edit this out. <laughs> yeah. 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 Totally. Totally. Uh, I'll be right back. Yep. power all Good. things are well in the world but yeah just on that note you know of sharing these things with children and adolescents and you know providing those connection points um, it makes me think and again i just like to sometimes plant seeds for things because um, mm-hmm. i know you know we have some mutual friends and we've got mr gorilla zen blake bowman up there yeah uh, not too far from you guys yeah. And uh, once the, well, I guess we'll see if and when, you know, we can travel regularly again. Mm-hmm. 
But if and when that happens, I would love to throw around the idea of some sort of a, you know, like a introductory hunting experience for guys that we can bring them on and have some, you know, and I'm even thinking about, you know, the place that I'm in right now and what I would be interested in and what I would, you know, pay people to, to teach me. Um, yeah. Can be such a good overlap in the health world and like the, the, the mental health world, because as we've, you know, talked about, and as we both know, a uh, few things are as stress mitigating as being out there uh, and, yeah. getting your, and getting your hands dirty and, you know, getting real valuable stuff done. Um, so yeah, I'm just planting that seed that awesome. uh, we'll have to come back and circle around and see if and when we can travel like free sovereign humans, uh, <laughs> we can cross these, these so-called borders and, yeah. uh, and make some fun stuff happen. Um, that sounds awesome. Yeah, man. Um, but so in wrapping up here, uh, I got one more question I'd like to ask everybody. And that is, and I know you've, you've already mentioned uh, some of your writing and your blog work uh, for people who want to, you know, read more in depth about some of these experiences that, that you're out there and that you're having. But for other people just generally interested in foraging and hunting, what might be three resources? These can be books or documentaries or anything. Uh, but three resources that you found really valuable on your own journey that you could recommend to people to check out. Three resources. Um, top on the list for me is anything by Sam Thayer. And I know you probably met Sam when you were at the Great Lakes Foragers Gathering. He mm -hmm. is an absolute maniac of knowledge about all things plant life. And he has written three amazing books and they can all be found on his website, which is foragersharvest.com. Uh, second thing I'd recommend as far as the hunting lifestyle goes, anything in the suite of the meat eater podcasts. So you have, not only do you have the show on Netflix meat eater, but then you have, the Meat Eater podcast, which comes out every single Monday. It is by far my favorite podcast that I listen to, and it's the one I wait for every Monday eagerly. Um, but it's not just your regular old boring people talking about hunting. You know, they get into some really cool issues. You know, um, a few episodes back, I want to say four or five episodes back, they they had a whole subject of like the inclusion of African Americans in the hunting scene, and they had a they had an African American woman come on to talk, and I just thought, you know, they're going into territory that not many people want to go into, and it's an invaluable resource, I think, for people who want to approach that hunting lifestyle but don't want all the dumb cultural baggage that usually comes with it. Mm. And then uh, I guess as far as like my third thing, uh, <laughs> this is a silly one, but there's a YouTube channel called Primitive Technologies and there's no words to it at all. It's just a guy doing primitive skills in some place in the world. I have no idea where he's at, but he builds amazing things and it's really inspiring. Okay. So, yeah. I think I may have come across something like that. Uh, I feel like the guy was in maybe like Asia or like a rainforest somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Somewhere. Yeah. Some rainforest. Yep. Yeah. It's insane. It's insane. And like you said, so inspiring. And it really just is one more point where I'm reminded 
at how degenerated modern humans have become. Yeah. Um, because, you know, how many people in the modern world could go out and to do anything remotely like what this guy can do? Meanwhile, I imagine, you know, our ancestors you go enough generations back and that was all just common knowledge, common practice, yeah. common knowledge. You know, you have little kids building huts, you know, just on their own. Um, so I don't know if that actually happened if little kids used to build huts on their own, but I'm sure some little keener somewhere, you know, was building by the age of like th- five or something. Um, <laughs> I bet. Cause you know, human beings when they're allowed to express their uniqueness and their own, you know, inner genius, and they're actually nourished in an environment that supports that, which is exceedingly rare these days. Um, amazing things happen, you know, amazing things happen. And so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in, you know, the preservation and the sharing of this kind of knowledge and culture, uh, because I don't see many things that are as foundational and empowering as these kinds of skills and experiences. Um, so I just want to thank you again, you know, and acknowledge you for the man you are and the hunter you are and the teacher you are and the father you are who is doing all these things, you know, and is making it work and is sharing about it and is learning and is being consistent with it um, because it, it's, it's, it's a rare thing and it's a valuable thing. So please keep it up. Thank you. I really appreciate seeing the content you're putting out as well. My pleasure. My pleasure. And for people who want to follow along, who want to, you know, follow you, your blog, follow you on social media, uh, learn more about your offerings, where's the best place for them to go? Well, my website is nomiforager.com. So that's N-O-M-I forager.com. And then if you want to follow me on Instagram, that is where I am the most active. That is Clay two underscores bowers so uh uh, and i have a facebook account that i i post to as well but i'm less active on facebook because it is so much of a dumpster fire these days so (laughs) (laughs) that's a great way to put it yeah Yeah. I'm, i'm i'm the same way i have my select groups uh and people that i'll communicate with and the rest you know i have the there's a great thing called the news feed eradicator which just huh. takes, takes away your newsfeed and gives you an inspirational quote. And uh, I've had that for probably five or six years now. Are um, you serious? There's a thing called the newsfeed eradicator? Wow. Yeah, man. Definitely get that installed if you uh, don't want to be distracted by the dumpster fire. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds it, awesome. Yeah, it's just a plug-in. It's a plug-in on your browser. Um, hmm. But that's it. That's it. So for everybody listening, I've been taking notes as we've been speaking here. And so everything that Clay mentioned, I'll have linked up in the show notes, which will be at brianhardy.ca forward slash Clay, C-L-A-Y. And uh, yeah, that you'll, you'll be able to follow him on Instagram. You'll be able to find out if you're in the area, the Michigan area or any area he might travel to, you'll be able to find out uh, when classes are coming up and when you can actually, you know, go out there and get your hands dirty and get involved and get reconnected to the source of life uh, and do it in a really fun and supportive way. So that is my sort of, you know, uh, invitation for folks listening to, is to, is to not uh, hesitate to get into this world uh, and to take it slow and to be uh, persistent and consistent and to enjoy the process. 
thank you, Clay, for coming on and sharing and informing me and inspiring me to continue this journey and to go deeper. And for everybody listening, thank you as well. Please, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, share it, like it, pass it on to someone that you know would benefit from this conversation. And until next time, we will catch you soon and have a healthy week. Thank you. Okay, that is it, my friends. Thank you for making it through that podcast. Let us know what you thought about it. Leave us a comment on the blog or on the Instagram post. And get engaged. We would love to hear from you. Any questions, feedback, it is all welcome. Assuming it is not just some sort of, you know, attack because you don't think people should hunt animals. We don't got time to entertain those kinds of thoughts, but we do got time to have intelligent discussions with people that really care. So check out the blog post, brianhardy.ca forward slash clay. Save yourself some coin on the Bioptimizers products and the products from 7Health. And there's probably even a couple other things up there that I haven't mentioned that you might be into that I'll have discount codes for linked up. Uh, again, Black Friday is coming up. Stay tuned. If you're not on the email list, get on the email list through my website and uh, stay tuned to social media because Black Friday is sure to have some really cool sales going on and I will keep you posted on the top things that I would be looking for if I wanted to take my health to the next level. Okay, we are going to play you out with a song that is very apropos here. It is called Into the Woods. The artist is Rob Ricardo. He's been one of my favorite artists these past few years. And this song, as you'll hear, is perfect for this kind of conversation. So enjoy this song. Enjoy Rob Ricardo. He's a fantastic artist. Follow him online. Follow him on Spotify. And have yourself an amazing, fantastic, healthy rest of the week.
Precious these 